We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're starting at verse 21. And before we do, let's just have an overview of where we're at. Okay? Ephesians, it's the total and full understanding, the first three chapters, of what God has done. You and I, we are chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And the mystery of God's will is that he's reconciling all things together. Christ and his church, the bride and his groom. And then we see the benefits. Christians no longer live in darkness, we live in light. No longer are we dead, we have life and life to the full. We have an eternal hope for eternal life. And then, chapter 4, verse 1, walk out that calling that you have received. How do we do that? And last week, Jamie unpacked kind of the community of faith, how we're called to be unified and we're called to be holy. As we live out that calling we have received. And now we're getting into specifics. If the first part of chapters 4 and 5 are about how do we be the Christian community, how do we be the light, how do we be life to a world that is dead, now we're looking at how does that work itself out in relationships. In relationships. Now, there are some complex things here, okay, that we're going to have to unpack. So we're going to do some complex bits, and then we're going to do overarching things. There are two keys to unlocking these passages. Verse 21 is the key. Now, we're all going to have different translations. Is 21 part of what's just happened, the unity of faith, submitting to one another in the Christian community? Or is it the start of something new? You see, each of our translations are going to have it differently. My NIV has 21 at the end of the previous chapter. Others of us will have it somewhere different. Which one is it? Now, we're all going to get into semantics here, which is very exciting. Now, verse 21 doesn't have the verb submit in it. So it's got to come from somewhere. Where does it come from? And it comes from verse 22 when it's talking about wives submitting to your husbands. Now, I'm going to use words like submit and head, slave, master, okay? Now, the problem is those words are there, okay? And we're going to get to it, right? We're going to discuss those words, but so I'm just going to go with the words that are there for now, but just hear me out. Right, okay. So, So verse 21 is linked explicitly to verse 22. It is the same verb. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your husbands. So there you go. So the, the title of these next three parts of Ephesians is Submit to One Another Out of Reverence for Christ. And then we're going to look at three lots of couples. Husband and wife, parents and children, slaves and masters. That's the first key, verse 21. The second key is the order. Okay. Now, the narrative, if you, if you see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read parts of this out, okay? But the narrative goes against it if it's kind of a call and response, right? You'll notice, if some, one group does this and the other group has to do that, is that what's going on? Here we go, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right. Tell me. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. 
Five, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Verse six, uh, verse nine, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. Is this a call and response? Okay, so there's three groups, wives, children, slaves. And then there's the next three, which are the husbands, the parents, and the masters. Is it a call and response? No, it's not. And to do that, we need to work out, what are these, what are these verbs saying? Are they passive, so therefore you have to do them? Or are they kind of present and middle, and, and therefore you're kind of opting in? You choose to do that. We're not going to look at every single word. A book has been written about every single word in these three passages, so we're not going to do every single word. But I just want to highlight the complexity of this. Right, we've got submit. Have a look with me, verse 22. Wives, what have you got to do? You've got to submit. Husbands, what have you got to do? Love. Now, submit here is not passive. You don't have to do it. You choose. In the same way, in verse 21, you choose to submit to one another. And then he gives a reason why you should, out of reverence for Christ. But you're choosing to opt in. Husbands, though, don't get the choice. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. Christ did, he did love us, and he died for us. Husbands, you do love your wife, full stop. So already we're in a complex kind of like, even the verbs are complex in this passage. So those are the two keys. This is not call and response. So when we hear, do this, do that, it's not do this, do that. This is a kind of ongoing circle, and we have to kind of grapple with who starts that process. Okay, so so those are the two keys that we have to think about as we get into this. Now, a little bit about household codes. Okay, this is what these are, household codes. Now, these couplings were famous. Okay, Plato, Aristotle, he kind of unpacked this idea, and he uses the same that Paul uses. Husband and wives, fathers and children, and masters and slaves. So this was a common reference. People knew what Paul was talking about, but he makes some massive differences. The thing with Aristotle, who kind of made these kind of household codes famous, it was his belief that the whole society, all of society, was built on this single unit, the household code. With the whole household following the same God, doing the same job in the same class, and that household is a microcosm of the whole society. It's why, right, it's why when Christianity and Judaism come along and they appear to want to affect that established order, that's why they're seen with kind of disdain, whereas other cults are not. It's like, why was Christianity so abhorred and other cults aren't? Because Christianity, to them, wanted to affect the kind of nature of society, and there are three household codes in the New Testament. We've got Ephesians, we've got Colossians, written by Paul, and then 1 Peter. And they reference these couplings, husband and wife, parents and children, masters and slaves. And, and the debate that was kind of happening at the time, this was the kind, of, um, the kind of Stoics, the kind of Greek philosophers, and you've got the Hellenistic Jews, which are kind of the Greek Jews. What they're kind of, they're all influenced by Aristotle. And a particular thing that was kind of there at the time was Aristotle's view of women, particularly. Okay? Now, 
Aristotle was actually very kind and compassionate to his wife. He was very loving. It's kind of known. But his view, many of you will have heard about this idea of kind of women being cold, men being hot. And at the heart of it was that Aristotle's belief was that women were kind of a deficient nature of men. That's kind of where it kind of came from. And this was highly influential. This is not just some kind of kind of niche kind of view. This was a kind of view. So then Jesus and Paul, they come into the scene. Now we often talk about how Jesus treated women and how Paul talks about women. The kind of debate at the time was not whether there was a kind of men and women are equal. It's the, it's the same as kind of slave and master. It's not a conversation to be had. And so when Paul comes along and he's addressing both slave and women, this is radical. But what we need to also acknowledge is that Paul is not writing these things because he thinks he's going to change a society. This is not the kind of, like they were saying, this is the basis of society. If this gets right, society flourishes. That's not what Paul is saying. He's basically arguing, how do you be a Christian in these complex relationships? And so whereas the Greeks and the philosophers, they were saying, this is the microcosm, Paul's not saying that. He's saying, how do you work out your Christian faith in the community of believers, which we've had from verse 4, 1 up to this point, how do you do that in these relationships? A massive difference. Okay? That's kind of where we're at. Right. I feel like it's easier if we, if we don't start at husbands and wives. We'll quickly go through children's and parents, slave and masters, and then we'll get to the wives and husbands. Okay. Children and parents, chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read both things and then we'll get to it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is key. This is not babies. Right? This is children who can hear, who are in the community of faith. They are literally being spoken to. So this is everything from anyone that is in church. Anyone that can hear right up to... Now, in those days, the father, kind of, or the grandfather, was basically head of the house until he died. So basically, he's saying, children, until you're like 60. We're kind of saying, well, you know, until you kind of flee the nest or whatever it is that you do. This is not kind of forever, because we don't have that system. But this is, this is children from the very earliest when they can hear right up to however old. This is not like babies and toddlers. What are they called to do? Verse one, obey. And this is interesting, obey. This is not obey in the Lord. This is not obey but or obey if. And obedience is linked to honor. Being obedient is to honor. And then Paul quotes the fifth commandment. And he does all the work for us, which is really nice. He says this, On your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, another philosopher, Philo, he was writing at this time, and he linked fathers, well, parents and children, and he says that it's a good thing and you'll have a long life. A good life and a long life. 
then he comes and he kind of over-spiritualizes everything. If you look after your children, they will honor you. If they honor you, you will become immortal. It's a big kind of thing. I wish, but that's, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Modern um, kind of commentators have kind of then argued, okay, well, hold on, to make this more digestible, what they're basically saying is, if you look after your children, children will look after you when you're old. Again, I don't think that's the case. I think he, 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 he draws us to the Ten Commandments for a reason. Why? Now, many of us have been in churches where we've heard about the Ten Commandments. And, they, you know, you, you've done, the first four are about God. Next six are about each other. Anyone, anyone ever heard that? Yeah, okay. I don't think that's, I don't think, I think that's too simplistic. Because historically and theologically, the Jews have had them on two tablets, five and five. And actually, honoring your father and mother is not about honoring them. It's about honoring God. It's about honoring the people that God has placed in your life to raise you in a Christian faith. Now, I know that that is very difficult in many circumstances. But in this Christian narrative, that's what, that's what kind of Paul is arguing, that you have been given these parents by God who are to raise you. They're not to make you upset as they are. To, they're not exasperating you, but they're there to train and to teach and to love and to care and to raise you up. It's why in the law, when we see all these horrific laws, if you disobey your parents, you get stoned. Have you ever thought, flip, that's intense. But it's intense if it's directed at God. No, it's intense if it's directed at parents, but it's not as intense if you start going, okay, well, this is God's way of showing us how to live by giving us parents. Now, I know that conjures up lots of things. We'll get to that in a minute. So, the children are meant to obey, and they're meant to honor. But what is the father meant to do? Now, it says father here, but it says father in the kind of way that sometimes it says brother, and it means brother and sister. It could be mother and father. Now, in the early kind of, in, when this was being written, the father really was the head of the household. They owned everyone that was in the household. In fact, you could sell your own children. You could have them, you could have them excommunicated and you could kill your children because they were your property. It's quite intense. But I think as well, we kind of, I think I've noticed occasionally, and this is not a generalization at all, but it's, I've, I've, I've noticed it. That, um, you know, and I don't want to offend anyone, but I've noticed it. But sometimes, especially in our culture, what happens is, is that you have mothers, and whether their full-time job is, is, staying, is being at home and raising children or whether they work, there, there is often a kind of a deeper desire to raise children in the ways of the Lord. Sometimes what I've noticed. And fathers can very easily, and I'm not saying every time, but very easily kind of opt out I don't know. I've just seen it once or twice. That's all. So what is it that parents are meant to do? What is the heart of being a parent? Well, it's not exasperating your children. That's a thing that you shouldn't do. What are you meant to do? Look with me at verse 4. Fathers and mothers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the law. That is the most important responsibility of parents and grandparents. Anyone in the family that is raising children, that is it. 
to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Not Rosie and Josh on a Sunday morning, not school, even if it's a Christian school or a Church of England school. It's, it's not school, it's the parents' obligation, duty, and responsibility to bring them up training and instruction in the Lord. I mean, it's fascinating how many times, and this, we're, you know, we're in London, so people are busy, but it's, it's extraordinary how many times you meet people that come from Bible-believing churches, and they say, I never opened the Bible with my parents. I never prayed with my parents. And I think one of the things that Paul is trying to unravel here is he's talking about the community of faith, and he's basically asking you, if you weren't a Christian, would you be... Would you be raising your children any differently? And if the answer starts with, we go to church, well, that's when the alarm bell should start ringing. Because right now, it's not been about going to a place. It's been about being part of a community of people that are totally and radically different from everyone else. let's, let's, Let's go here. It says here, right, This will probably be the bit that gets deleted from the thing, right? Okay. It says, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. With the narrative of Ephesians, who else is going to do that? It's not rhetorical. Who else is going to do that? If the parents are not raising and training them in the instruction of the Lord, who else is going to do it? Lucifer. Because everyone goes, oh, chapter 5 and 6, this is the crescendo. The crescendo is about to come. Who is the battle against? It's not against flesh and blood, against the principalities and the powers of darkness. That is why we put on the full armor of God. Those are your, and all the way through, where have we been saved from? Darkness, from the spiritual one. Death to life. Darkness to light. That is what is at stake here. So those are your two options. Right. Here we go. Slaves and masters. Oh, no, just very quickly. <clears throat> some, some, some of us have been unable to obey and honor our parents. Okay? That's, some of us have been unable. And I just two really quick things. Number one, verse 21 overarches everything. We're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ is above every human relationship. We follow Christ. Secondly, you are not your parents. If you, if you get to that, if, you, if you've got through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you haven't seen what Christ has done for you, then we've missed, we've missed something. So I'm very, I'd love to pray if that's the case. Okay, let's get to slave and masters. Can I just say, slave is a very difficult word to even justify using. And it would be wrong to just move on and be like, it means workers. I think it does, but it's very difficult. And you have to remember that historically the church, this passage especially, has made slavery and treating other people badly kind of digestible. This is that passage. But it's difficult. Paul's not advocating slavery. The problem is when we're looking back is slavery was a common practice at the time. No, slavery wasn't even a common practice. It was basically most people. 
Most people were considered slaves, whether they're in a household or they're under some kind of practice which was owned by particular families and politicians. Even educated people, such as teachers and doctors, doctors, they were often referred to or understood to be a slave to a family, that you could be bought, that you could be sold, that you could be freed. Paul's coming along and he's addressing them directly. And this was a significant moment. This is that no matter what your status is, you are incorporated and included in the family of Christ, just as much as husbands and wives and children and parents and those who you work for. It's this beautiful moment where Paul is saying, I'm directing you in the circumstance that you're in. Am I affirming it? Absolutely not but I'm directing you because you are a valued member of the community of faith. And that everything that he asks them to do is connected to Christ. Have a look with me. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, only their eyes is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone forever, whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. We obey because of Christ. And it's not for our human employees or masters, but for Christ. We serve as if we're serving Christ, and we do this as the reward for who? For Christ. This whole perspective and this whole circumstance is now looking ahead, looking to the future. And then he goes to these managers or masters. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. Christ is your master. No matter how high up the food chain you are, Christ is your master. And he's referring back to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for your master, Christ. And it's almost a warning, isn't it? Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism. And we can very easily apply this to our lives, can't we? What we do, how we do it. You know, Paul wasn't envisioning a kind of cultural and radical overthrowing of these ways of living. He's talking about how to be a Christian, how to have Christ at the center of everything you do. In the worst case, and in our cases, in our work. How do we work this out? I remember I used to work in Harrods, and I used to stand there selling Tom Ford perfume. And I remember thinking... How on earth am I glorifying God in this? And what had happened was, I mean, they, you know, they were, you know, they were expensive bowls, but, ha, you know, the, ha, the point, the, the thing that happened was everything about my Sunday and my community of faith and my Christian kind of discipleship was disconnected from where I worked. It was particularly awful there. But, you know, do you know what I mean? How, how you kind of, and that's the problem, is that what, what we've done is we've taken this and gone, well, Paul's advocating slavery so it doesn't apply. Paul is given Christ-centered ways of working out your faith in the circumstance you're in. 
And so whatever job we're in, we obey because of Christ. And we do it not for them, but we do it for Christ. We serve as if we're serving Christ, and we do it as a reward of Christ. And then for those of us that have people under us that we manage, that we love people, that there is something different about the way we work, something Christ-centered, that we treat people with absolute respect. And the thing is, in many working environments, that in itself is radical. Is, the, is your boss, in your view, the same as the cleaner? It's a difficult question to ask, isn't it? Do you treat them with the same respect? Something to think through and pray through. Just on that, it's very difficult, isn't it? Especially injustice in work. Weighing up. When, when do we submit and work through that and obey? And, and when do we call out things that we see? And I, I, the, as I've been kind of grappling with this, you, you know, we, we go back to verse 21, don't we? we? We're submitting all of this in reverence for Christ. And I think if we're trying to be light, we're going to pray through this, we're going to grapple with this. If we're in the community of faith, then we can talk to people and work this through with people. And it's, and, it's, and it's not easy, especially when we're not in an environment where it's Christian and Christian. That's, I think that's what he's referencing. He's referencing, I think in Ephesus and the surrounding areas, there'd been revival. That's what I think is, but how do we work this out? And, and finally, many of us have worked for Christians in Christian charities and Christian churches. Some of us have, and... We have seen the injustice in that situation. But people have got away with absolutely everything. Christ has absolutely no tolerance of sin in his body. So that will be justly stricken from the history books. So, you know, hear that. Verse 22. This is not straightforward. Let's just get the obvious things out of the way. This is not talking about men and women. Okay? So this has literally no bearing on society. Okay? Next. This is not talking about marriages where faith is not the same. Okay? We can, we can if, if that's something that you would like to talk through, we can go to 1 Peter and we can go to 1 Corinthians and we can talk through that. This is... Two Christians trying to work through their faith in marriage. And this is helpful for all of us because we're all part of the community of faith. And I'm going to raise a lot of things that we need to kind of think through as a church. I'm talking about HGC now. We need to think through as a church. We're not going to be able to do it all now. Right. So Paul is radical. Paul is very radical for his time. And he uses this cultural vehicle of the household household codes and he's highlighting what a Christ-centered marriage union should look like. Now, the big question is, what is he talking about? What is he really talking about? I'm going to read through the whole passage, and I'm going to highlight how he flitters through two things. Marriage, Christ and the church. What is he actually talking about? Here we go. <clears throat> marriage, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, now Christ in the church, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, back to marriage, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, Christ in the church, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, back to marriage, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He loves his wife, loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. Christ in the church, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Marriage. For the reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Back to marriage. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What is he talking about? What is the heart of this passage? I, th- I think it's Christ and the church. Okay? So you've got the Christian and you've got the church, you've got the body of believers, and they've been given this faith, right? It's a gift, so no one can boast. We read about that in the first three chapters. You're living a life worthy of the calling you have received, and in that you are trying to glorify Christ. That is what all Christians are trying to do in the community of faith, glorifying Christ. It's all about Christ, okay? Now, if in the heart of every believer, right, that is what we're trying to do. We're trying to glorify Christ in all of our circumstances, right? We're all trying to do that. We're all trying to live out the calling we have received. Now, that's chapter four, verse one. Now, are we able to do it to the same extent as everyone else? Yes. Because otherwise, you go down the road of certain things more glorifying Christ. Let me give you an example that is entirely made up. In one denomination, it could be said that the priest is the exemplar of Christ. Okay? So that therefore, it is the priest who initiates, who is the highest example of who Jesus is, and therefore they remain single as Christ is single. They absolve sins as Christ absolves sins. They are there at the Eucharistic feast. They are the most glorifying. It is the way to live. Some might say, some could say. It's a difficult one. Do, you, do we get that, right? Okay, now, this is the problem when we come to this passage. The Christian and Western church has placed marriage as the way to glorify Christ. But that is entirely untrue. Glorifying Christ happens in the community of believers. Everyone is doing that. One way, one way is through marriage. Okay? Otherwise, you get, otherwise, the extreme, which is never said because we would never want to say it like this, the other way is that Christians have a substandard way of glorifying Christ when you take it to the extreme, which is not where we've, we've got to. 
We're all trying to glorify Christ. Does that kind of make sense? So this passage, at its very heart, like with every passage in Ephesians, is about glorifying Christ. After chapters 1, 2, and 3, which is what Christ has already done for us, 4, 5, and 6, how do we glorify him? How do we walk out that calling? So at the heart of this passage is glorifying Christ. So then we get to two difficult questions. Is the passage misogynistic? Let's just call it. Is this passage misogynistic? No. This passage has been used and is used to distort and control and abuse. But there is no place, if you read this passage, in context of Ephesians, there's no place for that. And I'll tell you why, right? Verse 23. Look with me. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands are not the head. Christ is the head. The head. And we're all submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the example given is for the husband in his headship, and I'm using that language because that's what's here, is using the headship to express what Christ is to the church. So therefore, what is a husband to actually do? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, when you read love, what should you start thinking? Chapter 5, I'm, I'm only joking, no one's going to remember. But chapter 5, verse 1, we are to love each other in the community of faith. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. And when we read that, what do we think of? Chapter 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted for his pleasure and will. See, there's a kind of flow of the argument. God's love, and he uses Christ as an example, and now the husband is being called to love his wife as God loves and as Christ loves. That love is built on God's love. A husband is called to total self-sacrifice. He literally gives himself up in marriage. That is the argument here. His desires, wants, wills, dreams are literally thrown into the fire. It is self-sacrifice for everything. And so when marriage occurs before God, two people become one. And this represents us with Christ, Christ and his church. That beautiful mystery of salvation. How are we as sinners seen as righteous? Because we are in Christ. It's this union in the same way. What is a mystery? Husband and wife, these two fleshes become one spiritually. And then what are we called? Well, we're called to love one another in the community. And then to glorify God. God says a specific purpose is given to the husband to love as Christ loves the church. One way of putting this kind of in response to that question, is this misogynistic? Who has to stoop lowest in marriage? Who has to stoop lowest to marriage? Husband or wife? The wife has to submit and the husband has to love like Christ loved the church. Who has to stoop lowest? 
And then we get to, I'm not even going to, that's the husband. That's the husband. Then we get to verse 33. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Love his wife as he loves himself. This strikes to the heart of any kind of residue of egocentric masculinity and is utterly devoid of any trace of misogyny. This is the total self-sacrificing nature of a husband to his wife. Literally giving himself up for her. So then the question is, well, is the passage sexist? Misogyny is kind of man-domineering woman. We can see that that's not true. So is it sexist? Let's just lay the cards on the table. Do I love my wife more than she loves me? If she's called to submit and I'm called to love, do, do I love her more than do I love her more than she loves me? Right. <clears throat> if you just read 22 to 33, the answer is yes. Yes, I do love her more than she loves me. But you have to see this in the context of the whole passage and the whole letter. And the overarching theme of the letter is total reliance on Christ. And if my total reliance on Christ, then my life is totally changed in the calling of my salvation. And therefore, we're called into this community of faith. Remember, I keep referring to this community of faith. This multiracial, multi-ethnic, diverse community, which is all paid and brought with Christ. We used to live in darkness, but now in light, we're imitating God. And we love each other dearly as Christ has loved us, all of us. This is the key. We're loving each other in the community of faith. Now, I can, I can see some of you being like, he's moving away from the passage very sneakily. He's downplaying this submission thing. No. What I'm doing is, is I'm playing up chapter 5. I'm playing up the community of faith. Because we've become so obsessed with, with marriage that we've lost what the relationship was meant to look like before we even got there. We're meant to love one another as Christ loved the church. That's everyone. Everyone. And there's a disconnect between the way that we've loved each other to, well, of course, if you just got married out of the blue, this would look like that. But we've been loving each other and serving each other as brothers and sisters of Christ before we met, when we dated, then we got engaged, and now we're married. And then in that moment, in that moment, because we've been loving each other, then we come into this incredible union that God thinks, well, if the man is meant to take a kind of step of faith in self-sacrificing himself, then everyone, this is going to glorify God. And for some reason, he just thinks it's the best way to show it. The problem is not that the wife or a woman is meant to submit to a loving, caring, self-sacrificing husband. The problem is, before we got there, we had this mishmash of a community that was kind of, it, just, it was just like a plethora of kind of beings that floated in and out at kind of quarter to six on a Sunday. Of course we're going to look at this passage and be like, that sounds a bit sexist. Because, because that, that wasn't meant to be the kind of starting point. The starting point is a Christian community of faith and love and hospitality. That's, okay, this is, the, 
prophet, I think I can say this prophetically, right? This is why I think, some of us weren't there, but, but many of us were there at Vicky's three-part sermon series, yeah? On hospitality. Some of us were there, right? Was anyone there? Yeah? Right. It's why we, we hear that and we go, I don't know how to respond, but that sounds like the church. I don't know how to respond, but that sounds like the church. Because we're not doing it at all. So, you, we've got, you know, do I think that there are certain ways that God has created marriage? Yes, I do. Do I think that the husband is meant to self-sacrifice as Christ self-sacrifices up? Yes, I do. Do I think that, that, that a wife who sees that will want to lovingly submit in a, in a way that beautifies and glorifies Christ? Yes, I do. But if you start at marriage and you miss how people have loved each other and served each other and had this community, then of course that's going to look sexist. Does that kind of, does that, okay. Now there's loads of questions. Head. There's a really interesting book. It's over 1,400 pages long on the meaning of the word head. <clears throat> there are two really interesting examples in the ancient Greek. Does it mean source? And there are two writers that use that word. Does it mean Zeus, the source of all things? No, it doesn't. But I'm just highlighting that when someone says it might not mean head as we mean to know it, it, you know, it means. It's complex. It's a complex passage. But what I wanted to do is I'm not downplaying what we're meant to be doing in marriage. Absolutely not. But what I am saying is in the context of the covenant-loving church community, we've placed marriage as this kind of idol. And it's just, you know... And it's so wrong. Because we don't know how to love each other in a community of faith. You know, the the worst thing, I think, you know, what happens is as well is that people kind of don't... How someone acts around other believers will be how they act in marriage. And the problem is we haven't really done community very well, so no one knows how to act. I'm going to pray. I, if I, 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 you know, if you don't think I've gone far enough, or you've gone, if I've gone too far, please, I'd love to talk to you. I'm going to pray. And can we just one song of worship? Is that all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that your word rings true to us. And yet so often we don't see this in our lives. We don't see it in our marriages and families. We don't see it in our friends' marriages and families. And you are the God who loves us. Help us, Lord. Help us to love as you have loved. Help us to submit. Help us to serve one another. Help us to train and instruct in the ways of the Lord. Help us to serve as if we're serving you. Help us to cook and bake and and do things on the computer. And help us to do all that we do for your glory and for you as if you are the sole focus of our desire and the sole focus of our might and our lives. I pray that you would breathe on us. 
that we would love one another. And I pray that where this, these passages have stung, Lord, I just pray that your healing balm, your Holy Spirit, your peace that passes all understanding would be with each and every one of us. Amen.